0: Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've made and that you allow us to get up and enjoy so many good things from your hand, that we can come to church and hear from you and your word, and we can pray with each other and bear each other's burdens. We pray, the Lord, that as we study this section on the human condition and what the fall means for us today, that you would allow us to see how we hide ourselves from you and and all the different ways that sin controls us, but then also how wonderful your grace is to redeem us out of that. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, the last couple weeks we've been going over Adam and Eve and discussing the fall, and before that we went through the creation and the covenant of works that God had placed Adam and Eve in in the garden. And so last week we talked about the fall and what that actually looks like and entails. And the worst thing that could have happened to Adam and Eve did. They ate of the forbidden fruit that God said not to eat in Genesis 2. And so through that disobedience, they tasted death and they became estranged from God. And so that death brought separation. The guilt that they had brought separation between them and God. And it happened after they had eaten that forbidden fruit and had tasted of that first disobedience. Um, And so what happens after that is God is walking in the garden and Adam and Eve hide themselves. God calls to them and they're afraid to answer. And it says that they were ashamed of their nakedness before God. And God immediately recognizes what happens and in Genesis 3 he asks them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And it's kind of a strange question because as we see at the beginning of Genesis, God is this sovereign king who is omnipotent and he's omniscient and he knows everything. And so it's kind of strange that he would come and ask them this question. Um, if he knows everything, why do you think that God would ask a kind of question like that? Just what would you think that your first thoughts, like why would God come into the scene and see these these this couple after they'd sin and ask them that. Right. Right. Yeah, so he's he's doing it for their sake, right? Kind of think of it like, you know, parents come in and their kids have chocolate all over their face <laughs> and they're like, What did you do? You obviously know what they did, like it's not the problem that they didn't know, but you're trying to get them to confess so that you can actually bring healing and restoration. So God knew what was happening. They had the chocolate all over their face, and they were ashamed. And what happens, Adam blames his wife. And then he's like, the, the one that you gave me, Lord, that you gave me to love and care for, she gave it to me. It's her fault. you know." And then he was like, don't look at me. Look at the serpent. It's like You shouldn't have created that serpent in the first place. And he's the one who entered this garden, and he stirred up everything, and he caused this rebellion. But then God, he's like, he's bringing them all in trial. This this is like a courtroom kind of scene, and he's setting everybody out, and he's going through, they give their excuses, but what happens at the end is that God blames them all. You know, he's forcing them to take responsibility for their own actions. And so what we read last week is that God cursed the serpent, destining it to, like, to go on the ground and slither in the dust and making it an enemy of his children, making it an enemy of God's people forever, and he eventually would be crushed by the seed of the woman, by the child that would be born, that we read about in Genesis 3, 14, and 15, but then there's all the curses that come because of the guilt of sin that came about, that the guilt that they incurred because God's just, he had to punish sin for what it truly was, and... He says that Eve would have pain in childbirth and her struggle would be against abuse of authority and patriarchy and all these things where sin came and turned the whole world world upside down and took the good relationships that God created and turned them against each other. Um, But then her salvation, mankind's salvation, would come through the painful birth of a child who would lead God's people to crush Satan's head. God curses Adam, and He gives him his work to seem meaningless, and that's part of the problem—that the toil of making ordinary, everyday work this constant struggle—and then you die. Kind of like what we've been learning about in Ecclesiastes with Pastor Rob, like you just work and work, and then you die, and it's like so. It seems like that's part of the just like the the pain of this world. Um, that sin just turns everything upside down. It takes away the good gifts that God gives it and separates it from His hand, which is the only way that it actually gives life. And even though all these curses are happening, we read that God announces this hope, and He gives and symbolizes it by taking away the leaves that Adam and Eve had tried to cover their shame and guilt with, and He gives them these animal skins. He sacrifices an animal to show that the kind of death that has to happen for forgiveness to happen. But it ends in them being exiled and kicked out of that garden, the special meeting place of God with men. And he drives them out. And the state of existence that we now all find ourselves in is called original sin. Now, original sin doesn't refer to that sin that was the original first sin. It's it's important connected to it, but it refers to the collective guilt, shame, and corruption that we all kind of share in, that all, sh- all human beings share in because we're born of Adam, and, and so in this lesson, we're just kind of like drawing out what those things are, drawing out how breaking God's law leads to the verdict of guilt, which then leads to corruption, and then the subjective aspect of shame and how that kind of works its way into our existence. So in some sense, separation from God and life are really what's going on here. Guilt is the legal thing saying, like, our relationship has been severed. Guilt is that legal courtroom declaration where God is saying, you can't be in my presence, my holy presence, otherwise you'll be destroyed. And it's kind of like, if you want to think about it like this, like a sun's rays and a plant. So you have the sun giving life to the flower. Yeah, beautiful flower. Um, and so the guilt comes along and says, We no longer have a relationship, the corruption and then they're cast out of Eden, out of that garden. And so not being in the rays of God's light, corruption starts setting in and starts di- and starts dying. The plant, like us, we start withering because we're like the flower that fades, as the psalmist says, because we're no longer connected to the sunlight that we need so desperately. And so we have this aspect of guilt that we share with Adam. So Adam was God's human representative in the world that we talked about last week. And Adam was the human representative to God he was that king-servant who had that royal dignity who was supposed to reflect God's glory. He was the image of God. Adam and Eve were the king and queen of the cosmos, of the universe in some sense. And so he was given that purpose, but when he sinned as the human representative, his sin, his guilt, is counted as our own. It's in the courtroom that is given to all of humanity because everyone is seen as Adam um, now down to our ears in on the modern world, this kind of sounds really unfair this is It sounds really bizarre that we would be guilty for something that our parents did, guilty for something that our ancestors from millions or thousands of years ago like that doesn 't even make any sense to us like why would that even be the case but in reality, we we often think this because we think we can do it better. It's, it's We think we could have done a better job had we been there. Um, and in reality, we, we still have various different forms of representation, even in the world around us. Like we, we live in a democracy where we elect officials to represent us, and they represent us in the whole world, and they make actions that affect everyone, whether we like it or not. And... We still think that is just. We still, in some sense, have to live with that. Um, so how much more in an ancient world where they really saw the king as the connection between God and the world? And in many ways, that, that's just... We see that even in working out in our own lives. Um, the sin that maybe our parents had and how that just like affects the whole household. All of those things, we're so interconnected we're so connected as human beings that what one person does affects everyone. And that is ultimately what we're saying is here happening here, that because he was the first human, this breakdown in relationship and bringing in corruption into the world affects anyone who's born from his line. And that's what we see. Um, God intended for Adam to succeed and that he would be a blessing to all humanity, and Adam had the freedom... In, his, in that love, the love that God had created the world for, to choose to either obey or disobey. And he freely chose, without being manipulated, to try to have it all, to do it his own way. And his choice became the curse for all humanity. Um, so this guilt that we've inherited from Adam brought this death sentence. And the death sentence that God issued was in the form of the curse that we read about last week. Um... And I think this is like really important to get the, the the order of this. Uh there's one passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that really does a good job outlining the order of the problem. In 1 Corinthians 15, right after this wonderful passage of Christ's resurrection in verse 56, 1 Corinthians 15:56, it says The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, the problem isn't just with death. The problem is that there's death holds on and has its sting from sin. And sin, its very power over us, comes from the law, God's law being broken. And so in order to actually deal with death, death is just the consequence. Death is just the fruit of the of the problem. The law and God's verdict, that legal verdict, like a courtroom, of him saying you're cursed because of your guilt, the law has to be taken care of before death is dealt with. So that's like really important as we can even look at in the future, all our understanding of salvation, all our understanding of what Christ came to do, he just doesn't. He didn't just come to deal with, with death, but specifically the guilty verdict that Adam brought. Does that make sense? Um, so that's important. So, the guilt, that verdict, is what produces the corruption, and the shame, and that's like. That's a really important thing. But those are objective things that happened. And they're not just subjective feelings. So when we think about guilt, we often think of guilt as this feeling that we have. But guilty feelings may certainly be present in us. But guilt is not primarily a feeling. It's a state of our existence. It's the condition in which we're in. And humans left to themselves are guilty so all our feelings of guilt really flow from the objective fact that we are guilty. That's an objective thing that's external to us. <coughs> Excuse me. And and death is the ultimate reminder as the evidence or fruit of our guilt. And so when people die, we feel that sense that this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. Even though it happens to everyone, we still mourn about it. We, we are hurt by it. And our emotions and feelings testify to the reality that we, we really do share in this common guilt. Um, that guilt separates us from God. That it's that holy courtroom where of, of his sunbeams sun coming to us, of his favor and his delight, that we've been cut off from that. And as we're cut off from that, and Adam and Eve were cast east of Eden, we slowly just feel our life, going away because we're away from the person, the the, the triune God, who gives us life. And so from that verdict, uh, like the sun to the plant, that's when we start feeling the corruption, which is our second point. So we, we talk about the guilt that we all kind of share, we all commonly share, and now that corruption. So our mind, our body, and our will have become less than what God has intended for us. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah famously captures the problem when he says that the the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. And who can understand it? The apostle Paul says that he describes our condition and corruption as as slavery. It's a specific slavery that we're in, that it affects every single part of us. It doesn't mean that we're not human it doesn't mean we're no longer in the image of God, but that every faculty, every feeling, every single part of who we are has been corrupted by sin, and there's nothing, no single part of us that's going to save us, not in our heart of hearts, not in, not in our feelings or emotions. There's nothing that has been left untouched by that sin, and so sin, our sinful nature, is a slavery to our disobedient desires are our passions. And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says the, the word flesh. Like we, we, you see the word flesh a lot in the New Testament. He's not talking about like this as much, but he's actually speaking about the body of death that we carry around in us, the corruption and, and this condition of, of death and guilt. And so the, the Bible leaves no part of our humanity that's not untouched by sin that our sin and our sin nature is a slavery to our, our passions and our feelings. Thinking that those things that in some sense dominate us, those things that we can't live by anything but those things, that who we are ultimately down, deep down is our feelings. That's what Paul is actually saying is our slavery. when We're, we're, we're enslaved to our feelings. And thinking that that is reality. And that we have to be true to that in order to be real. Um, that's the kind of slavery that he's saying. We're being led along by our passions, unable to decide, being tossed about to and fro by every wind. When we're just uncontrolled, uncontrollable and unassailable by anything. And, and, and this whole pattern is, becomes our, our life. Now this corruption doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we could be. You know, like there are definitely deeper depths of depravity. Not everyone is like a ruthless murderer or Hitler or a Pol Pot or anyone that we can think of that we put at our top ten list of most evil people in the world. Um, but sin has so affected everything that we feel and enslaved to that Paul himself as a Christian says this says, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate in Romans 7, 15. Wow, if a, if a, if a Christian is saying that, that's insane. Like Paul as, an, as a Christian is saying that he's just himself torn by those feelings, torn by those passions, and constantly going back and forth between the gospel and and thinking that his feelings are ultimately his reality. And those are the things that the gospel constantly has to come in and free us from. Um, So because of this sin of the first human being that entered the world, the whole world was affected. Not just humans, but the whole cosmos, the whole universe, nature itself. And this corruption begins the reign of death over the world. It's... The, the prophet Isaiah says it's like a, a cloud, a dark, thick cloud that's amassed over the whole universe that's raining and it's covering everything. And God has sentenced humanity to this death through Adam. And we see that through sickness and disease and just the difficult process of getting old and being at war with our own passions in our inside of ourselves. Um... And so when Jesus came on the scene and he comes preaching the kingdom of God, he was preaching and healing and demonstrating what humanity should have had and should have been through his signs and wonders. And he does all these remarkable things like offering friendship to people who are broken. And... Showing these like little glimpses, these lightning bolt appearances of how his, he had power over death itself. And Jesus came opposing sin, not only just individually, with our own individual guilt and corruption, but on a social level, on a whole creational level, you know, putting down a storm and overturning the tables in the temple. Like There's so many things that he did, healing physical ailments, showing how he came to bring wholeness to what it means to be human in every single aspect. Um, Christ came to undo all these things that Adam plunged us in, and we'll unpack that more as we keep going, but it's just, it's just a remarkable commentary on what sin actually did and what God intended for humans to have and to share in his love. Uh, So that brings us to our third point of shame. So the guilt is that objective verdict that God gives in the courtroom, which removes us from his presence and his love. And so like that plant that's outside of the sunlight, we start to feel the corruption, and they start to wither, and and the flower fades. And even... Our own bodies we feel a certain separation from um, there's a certain sense where you know we said that death is a separation from God it's the separation from his presence, but we also even start feeling like we don't even have control over our bodies anymore uh, and that that shame that kind of comes into us makes us have this fear of exploitation. Um, before the fall, what, what did we see? Adam and Eve were, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. And that's really a really significant thing because after the fall, their nakedness becomes this shame because it makes them feel like utterly vulnerable. And shame is kind of like that feeling of nakedness, of being found out. And it's really attached to guilt and corruption. It's like the feeling that we're dirty... And it's a position of vulnerability, which we now hate. I mean, I don't know about you, but I hate being vulnerable. We hate the idea of being taken advantage of or exploited. And so fear is really undergirding a lot of what that shame looks like. Justin Holcomb, a writer and pastor, wrote about it this way, that shame is a painfully confusing experience. It's sort of a mental and emotional disintegration that makes us acutely aware of our our inadequacies, inadequacies, our shortcomings. And it's often associated with a shrinking feeling of failure. It can be simultaneously self-negating, but also makes us self-absorbed. And and as the psalmist said uh, in the middle of the Bible, he says, "...all day long my disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face." So shame comes into the scene as like the subjective element of all these things where shame happens when we recognize our vulnerability and our nakedness before God and each other and that we are exposed to sin and how it just affects every single thing that we touch. Um, It's kind of like the story of Midas. I'm sure you've heard the the Greek story of Midas who was granted this capacity that whatever he touched turns to gold. And... He thought it was this great treasure, but then eventually he couldn't even touch his own family members and ends up with him killing one of his own family members because he turns them into gold. And that is exactly kind of a, a picture of what Adam and Eve thought they were doing. They thought they were getting the gold. They thought that they were getting everything and they were going to have infinite wealth and riches on their own. But then now, because of guilt, shame, and corruption comes in, everything they touch is Poisoned everything that they do and they feel. And this is this happens socially. This happens in the institutions that we, we live in. This happens in families. This happens in our bodies. This happens on so many different thing, levels. And whenever human beings exploit one another or we feel exploited, that shame enters in and it isolates and separates us, and it breaks down community, and breaks down the, the relationships that God actually made us for. So not only does sin separate us from God, but we see how it really separates us from each other in a whole host of ways. Um, shame is this really this subjective feeling, and the weight of death in our own lives, and. It comes out in our feelings, in our heart, and in the bodies, which even leads to more sin. That's, like the, that's the scary thing. Um, that's the slavery that Paul is talking about, is that it doesn't just begin like this and just kind of like, okay, now we just have shame and we don't... Everything's okay. Hopefully we can just kind of build up from ground zero and make it back to the prize to where God ha- wants us. No, this, this whole thing creates a system of slavery. That constantly keeps us in the cycle of sin and shame and guilt, and that that really is what I think that is it would be really helpful to to kind of just plant on for a second is the understanding what this slavery kind of looks like? Sorry, my voice is kind of going <coughs> so psychologically experientially, what does this kind of mean. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's good to break these things down, but I think it's helpful to even just plant in that for a little bit and see the reality of how these things are affecting our lives. Um, when we understand <coughs> excuse me, these three aspects of our sin, the guilt, shame, and corruption, this is specifically how Satan loves to control us, loves to control the world around us. And it's specifically with our weaknesses, our fears and shame and sin, and this vulnerability. It's specifically through shame, and fear that that we're enslaved to our desires and feelings. Um, the author of the Hebrews has this like great out of the nowhere statement that like if you're just reading it, you're like, where did that come from? But it's so profound. He says in Hebrews two that since therefore. The children, share in flesh and blood, children of man. Christ Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. I just love that verse. Um, it's just like, so it just like it just kind of comes out of nowhere, but He's thinking all about this whole thing, this whole creation scene, this incident. That the devil comes along and he now, in some sense, is made the taskmaster where the wages of sin is death, he's made the pharaoh, he's made the king, the honcho um, and he controls people through the fear of death and that that and that is why we get caught in the cycle of sin I think that that is like when I, when, I, when I realized that, and when it, when it hit me, it was, it was really profound. Um, we often th- just think that when we make choices, we're just kind of like these free-floating entities and just like walking around and like, oh, I just fell into sin and there's nothing you can really do about it. But actually, it's the undergirding fear that surrounds us, that indwells us, that, that's a part of this corruption and shame that those are the things that are inducing more sin. Those are the things that are captivating us to our sin. It's, it's fear, and it's the fear of death. That's why we commit actual sins. And that's just like, that's why that verse is just like such a profound statement by the writer of the Hebrews, because it just like shows us a picture of our own hearts. But it also shows us how the hope comes in as well. Um, so death is seen in our guilt and shame and corruption. And this is what Satan loves to use. He uses our corruptibility, our shame and perishability, and being biodegradable. All that becomes an occasion for our sin. Uh, but what does this kind of fear look like? What uh, what do you think that people are afraid of today in our culture? What are the things that you think that Are some of the things that you see on the news that maybe people are afraid of or you hear people talking about? Oh, yeah. FOMO? Yeah. No, that's a good one. FOMO. Right. Fear of missing out. That's a good one. Any other fears? About people's identity and representation? Yeah. So people's identity and fearing about getting that right. Yeah, being judged and judgmental. That's good. Um, you could think of, like, nuclear war. Korea, North Korea. any Natural disasters. Um, so, all those are all great. So, most people, I think, in our culture, we don't really fear whether or not we're going to have a warm bed to sleep on, whether or not there'll be enough food on the table, though there are many who do, and many people that we interact with who do. But for a lot of people, majority of people in our culture, we can assume that the basic needs of life will be given to us and maybe that we even deserve them. And yet there's another kind of fear, I think, that, that drives us that a lot of these things kind of pick up on, a fear of losing maybe our status at work or at home, or in the culture um, or maybe in the church and the fear of having a bad reputation or not having influence all of those things cause anxiety that in many ways undergirds our way of life and how we're driven by that fear that the author of the Hebrews is talking about Um, so whether we're seeking to have a good reputation accumulate a lot of possessions and have all the nice gadgets, or gain the respect of status and influence can give us. Our achievements in life subtly move us to fear anything that might cause us to lose our way of life, to lose our lifestyle, to lose our freedom. Um, We don't want our freedoms or rights taken away. and the freedom to have whatever lifestyle that we want to choose. So this fear often drives our daily lives in many subtle ways, and I think it really is the cause of so much of the anxiety and pressure that our culture just kind of constantly feels. And we don't necessarily have that kind of basic anxiety where our immediate needs aren't being filled, fulfilled, but we do have another kind of anxiety that one... Psychologist calls calls neurotic anxiety. So he says that there's basic and neurotic anxiety. Uh, this author Richard Beck describes it this way. He says that feelings of insecurity, low self-esteem, obsession, perfectionism, ambitiousness, envy, narcissism, jealousy, rivalry, competitiveness self-consciousness, guilt, and shame are all examples of neurotic anxiety. And they all relate to how we evaluate ourselves in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. And so Beck distinguishes those two ty- types of anxiety where the former is just about survival. It's, you know, you're living and you're from day to day looking for food and you don't know if you're going to be in a, in a war zone or not. Um, but this is specifically where the works of the devil arise in our life, um, from death and deprivation. Um, In a lot of other third world countries, when resources are scarce, we tend to hoard our stuff and fight and even kill to survive. But I think neurotic anxiety really characterizes more affluent cultures like our own, and where physical survival is not in doubt. Um, I think that sometimes when we talk about the devil, especially in the West, we just kind of like, I don't know, have different conceptions about it, like a red guy with a pitchfork and a horned tail, and and we just kind of don't take it seriously, or we automatically think about you know, people being possessed, and heads just like spinning, and you're just like screaming and exorcism. But I think that the devil is actually much more subtle. He's much more like a serpent. Coming in and leading people along with lies. And as the writer of the Hebrew says, enslaving us by our fear, enslaving us by our doubts and the shame that we have. Um, as as vulnerable biodegradab- biodegradable creatures in this world of real or potential scarcity, Richard Beck writes, that we are prone to act defensively and aggressively toward others who might place our survival or our self-image at risk. And this is really where the, the devil loves to work when he's bringing in the fear of death, which includes any kind of fear that we're going to be diminished or exploited, that our reputation, our possessions, our respect, our status, our influence is going to be taken away. Whew! That's intense. So <laughs> I was like, that's just like... That's much more powerful, and I think that it's much more subtle and invisible, and why we don't like to think about it. We, we put it way down, and we don't talk about these fears, and it just becomes worse and worse and worse in our own lives. And I, in many ways, I think our American way of life just wants to seek to blot out any sense of, of vulnerability, any sense of meaninglessness or helplessness. And so we become obsessed with our identity, with our, our self-image, and we become obsessed with our worth and self-value. And all those, those things make us anxious and then change how we act with others, let alone ourselves. And self-loathing and self-hate and, and shame just become the mode in which we live. And kind of going back, if you remember, wait, weeks ago, we talked about how the different creation myths, how, how violence was at the heart of how other ancient visions of reality operated it was survival of the fittest a dog-eat world where you had these two competing gods and they're like killing each other and out of that the universe is created um that is what satan wants us to think reality is that is what the devil wants us to think is and this collective anxiety at its very root is driven by this deep fear of death uh the Bible says that it's through this fear that we are enslaved to our desires and incapable of, of, of seeing God or each other in the love and the trust that He made us for. Uh, because fear blinds us. I mean, it really does. Fear blinds us from reality. That there's two things coming in this world, death and taxes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> At least death. <laughs> um, but... You know, as Beck writes, our sense of meaning and self-esteem, the very bedrock of our identities and our existence, are actually forms of death denial. They are, they are existential def- defense mechanisms, illusions to help us avoid the full force of our existential predicament, um, that death is, is coming for us all. And I really think that our American culture just like, wants to deny that. We want to escape that. Any signs of weakness, debility, ugliness, helplessness, so we 're just going to have rich, wealthy, beautiful, amazing people on our televisions, driving sexy, sleek cars, and lifestyles of the rich and famous, and like that 's what we want, and keeping up with all these people and watch following their Twitter and this whole cultural ethos doesn 't want ugliness we want to stay away from people who smell bad and and look differently than us and It's because we don't want death to come for us. We don't want corruption. We don't want to feel that shame that in our heart of hearts we know is there. Uh, And um, this is like this life that we see around us, like as we constantly are doing these kinds of things to kind of put death away, that's actually what speeds death up in our lives that we just are running head head towards it. We don't even realize it. That th- these things that we're addicted to and the and the path that we're caught up in, that the devil loves to trick us in, we think we're running away from death. We think we're running away from all those things, trying to conquer that by following our feelings, by following our heart of hearts. And that's actually what that leads to the wages of death. That's what Paul is saying. You guys think you're running to freedom, but it's actually... The cause of death. And that's like that's the scary thing, is that we're so blinded by those things. And it's really those unspoken fears that have the most power. Um what what did we say that God immediately did when he saw Adam and Eve? We just talked talked about it earlier. When when he sees them in the garden, what does he do? He questions them, he brings out their fears and he brings out their problems immediately. And he says, like, let's deal with this. Causing them to confess their fears so that, yeah, a curse is coming, the curse is coming, but those things have to come in order for the grace to come in. We have to hear God's law every Sunday in order to hear His grace. God is like not letting us get on with life without having our fears put out on the table because that's the only way that the power of fear is overcome if we keep hiding it and hiding ourselves from god the fear just controls us and will never abate it'll just get worse and worse and worse but god is coming and he's saying you know like my love is greater than all that and his and his power to overcome that is just marvelous um yeah, so this fear drives so much of our humanity and so much of our culture and what we say and we do. And kind of running out of time, but religion is even often used today for that very thing. Um, it's just fear-driven to maintain the status quo, to appease some god, and to drive out the fears we have in this life. And we sometimes even use Christianity for that. Um we try to use it to keep our life from falling apart. And in a certain sense, God is doing that, but not in the way that we often think. Uh, we think that religion is just going to prop up ourselves in the eyes of our community, maybe our family, maybe the eyes of others, so that we can be seen as holy and clean. You know, we're not defiled like all those people out there, and we're not unholy like them. And. That is fear in our lives that's driving us to look away from others who may be different from us, who act differently, who might be a different social class. And what God is ultimately saying is that that fear that's at the heart of the sin is what drives out love from our lives. It's what drives out drives us east of Eden and out of God's presence. It separates us from God. And... Our lifestyle choices, our budgets, our building plans, our hopes—like they're sadly just kind of driven by this this fear of death, the fear of others not being liked or accepted—and the author of the Hebrews is saying, like, this is that's the fear of death by which Satan holds us captive. Um, this narcissism and anxiety that's really at the heart of our society—we often just use that and think that you know we're just going to use god to make us happy healthy and wealthy it's going to you know fix all our problems fix our identity fix all the things but we don't realize that we're still that's still the operate operating according to the reign of death and we just want god to like operate in that and we don't even we don't realize that god wants so much more for us than that that this is the very thing that christ came to destroy the works of the devil while we constantly build walls to keep people out who are different from us, Christ came to tear those things down. That Christ partook of our flesh and blood, and he partook of everything that we went through, so that through, the, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So it's this, if, if this is the case... This is pretty intense stuff. Um, if this is the case, if this is what how the devil actually works, it's through the fear of death, and he produces rivalry, greed, and strife, and violence, then the propensity to just follow the devil is really at the bedrock of our identity as humans, in the condition that we find ourselves in. It's very much just a part of who we are. And... Escaping the fear of death requires a radical, radical kind of rescue that we can't imagine and a transformation of our identity, of who we are deep down, that we can't trust our feelings. We can't trust those things that we think are are identifying us. We can't trust a lot of these things that, these fears that drive us, because all those things are going to death. And those things, the wages of those things are death. What the gospel promises is that Jesus has overthrown death and that he's defeated the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so the gospel comes and delivers us from the fear of death. God first takes away the guilt by obeying the law perfectly in our place. Like that's the problem. The law is the problem, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not just death, it's not even just sin. But the guilty verdict of the law has to be dealt with before death is dealt with. And so guilt is no longer over us. The guilty verdict that God had that makes us enslaved and fear and so fearful of death is removed. And so we don't have to be self-protective. We don't have to be aggressive or violent. We don't have to just think it's a dog-eat-dog world, that we live in this kind of Debt economy of scarcity, where it's the survival of the fittest, where I have to compete for this job or this position because if I don't have that and the other person has it, they're going to get ahead of me. And I, there's just so much anxiety. No, we, we don't have to live like that. Like everyone is a part of this grace economy now. God has brought us into this gracious economy of how we relate to each other. And it's no longer that violent struggle where you feel like the next person next to you is the dragon and you have to like tear them apart in order to make a life for yourself um, and even on our own hearts we can be at peace because God is, has dealt with those our, our biggest problem of guilt and because of that he's dealt with death so we can be enabled now to be brought back to God and we're allowed to be back in his presence and grow again as a lovely flower and, and feel the sunshine. <laughs> um, it enables us to practice self-giving, and, but which is really at the heart of love, that sacrifice where everyone else's good is actually my glory. Everyone's good and their flourishing and their happiness is my good and happiness because that's what Christ did. Um, We have our identity in something that isn't based on our, everyone has it, our neurotic anxiety, our feelings that come and go. It's based in the eternal God, that we have communion with them. And just to kind of close, I've kind of run out of time, sorry. Um, This is why everything we do in worship is so important in the liturgy, uh, and everything we do as Christians our baptism, it's a sign of God burying our old identity and killing it and saying, you don't need that anymore. That's going to lead to death. He, he says, to death, you will die. And in our baptism, we're raised in newness of life with Christ. So our old selves are left in the tomb with Jesus. They're gone. It's gone forever. All that sh- that, uh, that shame, that guilt and corruption is gone in the tomb singing the songs of heaven. Like, I might not be feeling great and chipper and happy, but just starting to sing is an amazing way that fear is removed and doubt is removed, causing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. The Word of God comes to us and washes over us and as we hear it from the preaching and the whole service, and causing our eyes to fix our eyes of faith on Jesus who's in the heavens, in God's presence. So that he can send that shower of goodness to us, because he's in that courtroom. God is in the Jesus is in the, is in the courtroom for us, bringing us to that light and life. Um, prayer, prayer is a great way that denies the power of Satan in our lives. I don't, I don't know how. I mean, it, it just prayer is one of those things that I know it's important, but I don't do it, and I should do it. I feel bad for not doing it but when you do do it and you really see what God is doing in prayer that it's actually God at work in you in prayer he is uprooting fear out of your lives he's giving us himself again and again in prayer and that kind of prayer that kind of this kind of worship that we're constantly a part of is the only drama is the only worship place that's going to bring us to love um eating the Lord's Supper, Christ is bringing us into His shame and guilt that He suffered on the cross and He still wants us to come and feed on Him. He still says, Come, all who are heavy laden and taste and see that the Lord is good. He's changing us as we take part of Him from the inside out so that fear no longer controls us, that we can be self-giving and not afraid that we're going to lose ourselves. Um, We don't have to be afraid of neediness because that's so essential to what it means to be human and to be children of God and to need God and need each other and be a part of this economy and this household of faith, this household of grace so that if we're going to live in love, We know we know in this house that we've been freed from death. We're no longer in the household of death and slavery. We're in the household of of the king. And that's why Paul says perfect love, or John says, sorry, that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love is possible only when that fear of death has been overcome, when we as a community start learning to participate in Christ's resurrection. Like that is our identity. When we start resting in that more and more and more and going further up and further in and never-ending cycle of His love, like that is our identity and purpose. And it's that joy that actually starts slowly freeing us from these things. It's not going to happen all at once. It's going to happen, you know, maybe over our whole lifetime, and that's okay. Um, but... This is the school of grace that God has brought us into, and, and so next week we'll talk a little bit more about specifically the covenant of grace that Christ initiated in Genesis 3.15 and kind of like see how that trickles out through the whole Bible. Um, any We have like five minutes left. Any questions or thoughts, concerns, rebukes or bottles? Yeah. So, how does uh, how does federal headship relate to that passage in in the law about not being put to death for your children's or parent's sin? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that that those are two different kind of issues. I think the sins that they're talking about aren't. So, one is a big picture in terms of like the backdrop of humanity. Of what makes sin and death possible. And that's what Adam's federal headship is about. It's it's about humanity in the big scheme of things. I think Israel and what's going on in that passage is specifically in the ancient world's context where <clears throat> excuse me, I'm starting to lose my voice. Where you had all these outlandish laws in the ancient world where if you stole a piece of bread, they'd chop off your hand if your father did something to dishonor somebody, your whole family had to be destroyed. Like it was it was it was more it was it wasn't eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it was even more exaggerated than that. So that's the context in which I think a lot of the the old testament's being written where it's kind of curbing a lot of that back and saying don't punish people in these outlandish kind of ways. It was ratcheting back a lot of the violence that you see in like the Code of Hammurabi, or in ancient Babylonian law, where I mean, even today in the Middle East, they still practice a lot of things where you'd lose your hands if you stole something, even if you're starving. Like there are places that still is happening. So we just happen to be on like a whole other end of the spectrum, having been in, having our culture been influenced by the Bible and the New Testament and a whole very different vision of justice. And so I think that that is much more the context. That it's, that it's specifically trying to deal with. But it doesn't, in my mind, negate the fact that we're all still in this pattern of guilt, shame, and corruption. It's not talking about that. that makes Does that make <clears> sense? <throat> Any other questions or thoughts? Well, let's pray then, shall we? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this day that you've given to us again, allowing us all to be here, that you have baptized us and brought us into your Son, and you've taken away all of these things that daily just plague our minds and our hearts. Then you can give us the firm, objective anchor that we have in heaven, Christ is seated at your right hand, that he is our identity, that he knows the worst things about us, and he still loves us. And He's overcoming those things by His Spirit every day, and we pray, Lord, that You would work these things into our hearts and allow us to die to our old selves and that fear of death, and allow us to live in Your household and household of grace, and live in that love that You call us to, because You have died for us and, and Your Son bled for us. In His name, we pray. Amen.